Okay, good evening everyone. Thanks a million for coming out on this beautiful evening. Um, splitting the rocks. Splitting the rocks out there, so fair play to you for coming in out of it, yeah. Um, we're delighted the talk tonight is, well it's very special because it's, it's Don and his wealth of knowledge, but it's also kicking off, it's the first event for Fela Brown Brew 2023. So the festival is going to be running from now basically until Sunday evening. Um, we're meeting tomorrow night to maybe move a couple of events based on the weather and that, but anyway, that's, that's a whole other story. So just if, if you have any interest in that, check out the, the website. We have a good few bits going on for all ages, everyone. Okay, so this is our second time with Don, Donica, sorry. Oh, Don is fine, Don is fine, absolutely. Don Donica McGowan, <laughs> oh. his official title. Um, some of you might remember he came to St. Flannan's Church, the Catholic Church in Killaloo back in 2018. Spot that, yeah. And did a fantastic talk on the Harry Clark and the Harry Clark studio windows that are in the church. You were there, were you at that? No, wasn't no. Uh, but it was a fantastic talk well, thank on, you. <laughs> on the study that he had done on the Harry Clark windows um, and to be able to do it under the windows and um, to be able to see what he was talking about and everything as he spoke. It was fantastic. So he's back again after 15 years of, at least, <laughs> of study on old Irish manuscripts, and he has produced this fantastic book last year, was it? It was last Just in the autumn, yeah. The autumn, uh, September, yeah. or October, yeah, yeah. 22. Um, all about the, the Book of Kells, um, and he has some fantastic, uh, which I can't get to know, but just illustrations. a whole, yes, illustrations and a whole um, uh, study on, on everything that's in it. So he's going to just tell us a little bit about it tonight and these books will be for sale afterwards if, if anyone has any interest and Don will stay around and if anyone has any questions or would like to chat to him afterwards. Absolutely. So I'll hand it over to you now Don. Gormil Mahogat, thank you very very much indeed um, Arlene and Deborah and the ba Killaloo Ballina Historical Society for in the invitation to be here tonight. Who wouldn't want to come back to Killaloo, Killaloo Ballina? It's such a magical place. Well, I have a daughter living out the road a little bit, so uh, grandchildren bring me here as well. And then to be in this just magnificent building. I mean, you're looking at the amazing three light east window there. I mean, you could look at that just for the hour that I'll be talking. I'm looking at the groin vault here in the crossing, and that's just absolutely stunning. And then you have the Romanesque, but I won't go on. This talk isn't about the building here, but it's just, it is really a privilege to be here. And I mean that very, very sincerely. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about my own background, just because it'll, it'll feed into telling you a little bit about the book um, and what's involved in that. And I'll tell you a little bit about the kind of ongoing work that I'm doing in relation to the Book of Kells in particular and issues surrounding that. Um, and I want to begin by mentioning somebody who would, I, I, I hope you can see that, and I hope I'm not blocking anyone's view, Dr. Peter Harbison. Some of you will have heard of him, some of you will probably know Peter. Past, left us not so long ago, uh, he had been ill for a while, and I started my project. I mean, I was introduced by as Dr. Dunham, I rarely, you, you rarely use that. I, Young people who want to pursue an academic career want to be doctor so-and-so because that's part of how they progress. I began this project in my 50s when most people are thinking of retiring and sort of doing a bit more in the garden and things like that. And it has been the most amazing 
passionate journey. I describe it to people that I fell into the Book of Kells. I haven't stopped falling yet. I, it, I could get an awful awakening when I land. Is that, that's what they say, isn't it? It wasn't the fall that hurt him at all, but the sudden stop at the end. But you can't do a project like this without huge uh, support and uh, you know, mentoring and advice from many, many people. And uh, one of the very first people I met was Peter Harbison. I always carry Peter's guidebook in my car, the National Monuments of Ireland. He's been with me for years. And um, uh, so I just want to remember, as I, and some of you may know, may know or have met him or heard him speak, because of course he was our preeminent expert on the high crosses, and he would know the high cross here and, um, and so on. I mean, there's such a wealth of history around this place. You're very, very welcome, Fáilte. Hello. Um, you have a note from your mother for being late. <laughs> the fact that I was, the fact that I was a teacher now, I'll start. Will probably, if it hasn't already, be, become aware. Um, so, and I, I was very fortunate to meet a wonderful supervisor in Michelle Brown in London, who has done, has written more books on manuscripts, in particular the Lindisfarne Gospels. Uh, immense uh, support from people like that, and. Uh, just uh, to tell you what the book, this is the Book of Kells. I've actually brought my facsimile copy with me, which is what that is, what you're looking at there in the photograph. And um, it's a gospel book. So it's a book of the four gospels, and that would be very, very much at home. I was going to put it up here, but the, the ledge, I, it was just a bit precarious. And I'll be talking to you a little bit about the eagle that we have here a little bit later on. I'll be just making a brief mention of that. But a gospel book is very, very much at home in a building uh, of this kind. Um, and uh, I'll mention, yeah, okay. And of course, I just wanted to mention, this comes, the, the Book of Kells was made around the year 800, 8th, 9th century, there or thereabouts, we can't be more specific than that. And of course, you might recognize the image in this slide, um, Inish Caltra, one of the most famous, one of the most rich um, you know, places of heritage of our early Christianity, and that lasted for many, many centuries. And uh, just a couple of other shots from that. There was obviously maybe a celebratory mass. I just took a few images from the... And of course, all of these monasteries would have produced manuscripts. Now, this is a much later one. It's actually a Psalter from the 11th century. It's much later than the Book of Kells. So whatever was produced here on Inish Caltra and in, in the other monasteries around as well are probably all lost. They're perishable, they're easy rats or vermin or whatever could eat them. Uh, they can be um, burnt easily in a fire and Vikings robbed them and threw them all into the, the, the sea or um, you're all sorts of uh, depredations. So what, we, what, we have, what we're left with in terms of our manuscript culture is tiny. And this is a wonderful, this is a, a, a Sam book. Um, it's, in the, it's in UCD in Dublin, very fragmentary, the Psalter of St. Cayman. Now, St. Cayman didn't write it. This is much, much later. St. Cayman was much, much earlier. But I'm just showing that as a, as a kind of a connection with the locality here. Um, and it's wonderful to be here in, I don't know if you recognize him. 
right? Uh, I think that's in Dublin Castle. And the, I'm kind of channeling my inner Brian Baru in that um, Brian Baru is supposed to have been very passionate about recovering manuscripts that had been lost through Viking raids in earlier times, and also manuscripts written by Irish monks who had gone abroad as missionaries. And now, we don't know that for a fact, because the story about Brian doing that was written maybe by his great-grandson, maybe a hundred years, the Cogagail Regalif. Um, so we can't be sure, but let's not let the truth spoil a good story. Let's, let's, and why wouldn't he be such an important king? Why wouldn't he be um, interested in the culture of his people? So Brian um, was very interested in restoring the, you know, the, the, uh, the importance of Irish culture. You could, you could call it maybe the first Gaelic revival, in a sense, if he's trying to do that following the Viking periods and so on. So there's Brian. And um, why would anybody need to write a book on the Book of Kells? Why would anybody need to spend 16 years studying it? Surely there was no need for anything further. This is one of the most famous books on the planet, one of the most famous manuscripts, never mind in Ireland. Um, this is, no, you know, you mentioned, I'm, uh, you could be anywhere in the world and you mentioned the Book of Kells. Not everybody, but most people have heard of it. And I was kind of um, stunned to discover that a lot of things hadn't been studied in any great depth. There have been a lot of studies done on it, but aspects of it. So in, with regard to the hands or the scribes, uh, that's another term for the scribes, only based on general impressions and then so, and other comments that there's much we do not know about the Book of Kells and much of what we think we know is built on shaky foundations. So things like general impressions, um, much we do not know, and shaky foundations. So I was kind of stunned when I came to this project to discover that there was so much work to be done on that. Um, and that's where I ended up uh, starting my book. The received wisdom about the Book of Kells, the traditional view has been that there was a big team of scribes and artists. And if you just had a quick look through the book, you would certainly agree, yeah, there seems to be lots of different kind of things happening here, and it looks like there were many people involved, but nobody had uh, tied that down. And I worked as an artist and an art teacher for 35 years. And if you were my class, I would know Arlene's work, and I'd know Deborah's work, and I'd know your work and your work, if it was only a scrap of paper on the floor at the end of the day. And I'd say, well, that Deborah, she never writes her name on her piece of work, and I'd know exactly, because you would know, it's like a fingerprint, it's like your DNA. You can tell the gesture, the weight of the pencil mark. It might only be a scribble. And I felt, if you looked carefully enough at the Book of Kells, you'd actually be able to determine who did what, how many scribes there were, how many artists. And instead of a big team of artists and scribes, I found two people, two remarkable people, and I've given them names. I called one the scribe artist because he does all of the script and some artwork, and his colleague or collaborator is the master artist. And um, 
they began the project together, uh, worked together, seemed to get on very well together, and then something, some kind of hiatus, whether it is a Viking raid, a plague, an illness, or a dentist once said to me, maybe they just had a row. Uh, and whatever, for some reason, only one of them, only the scribe artist remains. This is one of the reasons why some of the work in Kells looks a little bit different. He remains after this hiatus. He's not working as well as he used to. Maybe he's just older. Maybe he has suffered injury or illness. Maybe his eyesight is failing. Maybe there's a little bit of a shake in the hand. Whatever. His work is not as good. But one of the things that I, my study, my research has revealed is this wonderful story of the single survivor continuing to try to finish their joint masterwork. And he doesn't, he more or less gets there, he doesn't quite get everything finished. And some of the things he adds at the, towards the end, they're, they're not great and they're not the best of editions and he'd probably have been better to leave them out. But there were, a very interesting thing about the Book of Kells, as I said, there's a few bits not finished. And it wouldn't have been so difficult to ask a talented artist or scribe 50 or 100 or 200 years later, you're very handy at these kind of things, why wouldn't you finish it? That did not happen. There is nobody allowed. It must be some kind of taboo. It was okay for the scribe artist to work because he was part of the original team, but it was obviously some kind of taboo within monastic culture, nobody. There were a few people who scribbled in things in later medieval times, but that was nothing got to do with the making of the Book of Kells. So that's really what, what, what is a revelation in my book, uh, is that it identifies these two individuals and how they uh, worked together to produce um, this. So of course, making all these discoveries and wanting to share all these, I was in heaven. It was the most joyful, and as I said to you, still continues to be a most joyful experience. And initially, I could, should go back there, initially I had, you know, many scholars, people helping me, it, not just Peter Harbison and my supervisor, uh, and many people in Trinity College. I had a number of people there who were very supportive and very, very helpful. But with heaven, you also have hell. And when I, particularly as I began to finish my study. Now, there were efforts to derail my study. There were efforts to uh, prevent me from finishing it, from publishing it. But particularly when I went to the stage about four or five years ago when I began to inquire about trying to find a publisher, I experienced immense, immense, I would call it bullying pressure from a particular institution, which I won't mention because Trinity College doesn't like to be mentioned in that kind of a way. Now, it's, very, it's awful. Trinity College is a wonderful university. It's awful to say that. And I'm probably upsetting some people here. It upsets me. Trinity College or any, you know, is a wonderful university. Many, many fantastic students, scholars, lecturers over the years. But they're, they're, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of explain a little bit what's happening. Uh, but then there's always the possibility of a miracle. And about a year and a half ago, I was talking to a publisher in Limerick, not a publisher, a printer, just, I felt, look, I can't get it published. There's too many obstacles. Um, and I'm just gonna have to try and print a few copies myself. And I had been in touch with Sidestone Press in Leiden in the Netherlands. They mainly do archeology. span 
And eventually, we actually, the miracle actually happened. And I, I mean that in, 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 a, in a very profound way. This is a miracle, not because it is brilliant, <laughs> right? I don't mean a miracle in that sense. I think it makes a contribution, it makes a genuine contribution to our understanding of the Book of Kells. And people have written about the Book of Kells as if it was the work of angels, as if itself it was a miracle. This is a miracle that this book got published. I'm a mere mortal, and I'm sure there are plenty of human errors in my scholarship, but um, as I say at the same time, I think it makes a, a, a contribution. So, I'm just going to move on and explain. This book on the left is actually the text of my thesis. Now, for those of you, if you have done bad things in your life and you need to punish yourself, you can go online and you can find that and you can read my thesis. And the book on the right is actually 700 pages of illustrations for my thesis. I deliberately put in everything into my thesis. That's also available online. Now, it's a little bit of a trick to have a book of eight, 700, nearly 700 pages of illustrations when there are only 680 pages in the Book of Kells itself. So that's a kind of a, a little magical trick in itself. But my university in London, around 2015, they said, you better contact Trinity College because we want to put your thesis online. Almost all theses now are made available online. They call it open access, and it's absolutely wonderful absolutely brilliant because it means somebody studying whatever out in Jamaica or in Chicago or in Australia, you can look it up instantly. You don't have to leave your chair. You don't have to go to the library in Australia or wherever. That's absolute. It has revolutionized scholarship and the exchange of ideas. One of the great benefits of the internet. So the answer I got from Trinity College, reluctantly, they allowed me to um, have my thesis available online, and with the instruction that it is very unlikely that it, uh, they'll be given uh, to, uh, permission to print it in any other form would be granted. Now, when somebody tries to stop me from doing something, I'm like the bold child, I will be even more determined. And I also found some willing accomplices and giving papers in conferences, so back in 2017, uh, this conference was held in Galway, and I have a chapter in that. And the same, this was the same conference held later in Glasgow, and I have a chapter. Sorry, the conference was in 2014, uh, and the book was published in 2017. I have a chapter in this one. I have a chapter in this. And here, again, it is a journal uh, in an American society of... The American Society for Irish Medieval Studies uh, published... I did a study on a gospel book from Bohr, which was kind of relevant to my study on the Book of Kells. And this one is medieval humor, uh, because there's humor in the Book of Kells. Strangely enough, you might think in a gospel book. My understanding of humor in a gospel book is that the monks at this time probably considered humor to be a God-given gift, that a smile or a laugh was actually something of divine origin, not something to be, uh, um, you know, dismissed. That is a very genuine gift. Anyway, that's, uh, the, I, the, all, the, all, the, the, all the information in these are also, they're also collected together in my book, which was published finally in October 22, just last year. 
Um, now, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about uh, the Book of Kells. That's the Cairo page. I don't know if any of you are familiar. Have, would many of you have seen that image before? Not many of you. Okay, I'm going to give it to you up close and personal. I know the light isn't great. When I started this, I, I subsequently, and if you want to come up afterwards and have a look at my facsimile here, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just briefly show it to you. I'll show you because it, it shows you the exact size of the Book of Kells. Uh, this is an exact copy of the Book of Kells. Cost me about 15 grand, but I couldn't have done it without it. And I love nothing more in this life than sharing this with people, and I'll tell you a bit more about that. I can come back and share it with you another time. I've been very, very privileged. There was only about 1,500 of these made. And it's, it, it's only, there are only photographs on paper, but it's as close as you can get to the actual Book of Kells. And the Book of Kells is actually now bound into four volumes. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each gospel is separate for conservation reasons. So this, in another sense, this is actually, well, it gives you a sense of the whole thing as one book. So um, anyway, that's, that's the the Book of Kells. What I'm going to pass around among you, and I'm going to give you a magnifying glass. The light isn't great, so maybe if your neighbor had a light on their phone, you might be able to see it. This is the Cairo page. You'll see on the, it's in a little perspex frame. This is the back of it, which is just a page of text. And have a look through the magnifying glass. Just pass that around there's no rush. I mean, for the next half an hour, it can be moving slowly there through you. And as I say, in the light, I'm not sure how well you'll be able to see it. You, if you have some light coming in here, you'll probably be okay. It is just incredible work. And um, back around uh, 1868, Margaret Stokes, she was a wonderful scholar, and she um, did... A, how would you say, a restoration, if you like, of the page. You can see on the one on the left, the original, there's bits of it missing and it's a bit damaged here and there. And um, I tried to do the same. And this is when I was an art teacher. This is 16 or 17 or no, 18 years ago, maybe. And I, we had this lovely new school building, lovely big, big, huge walls. And I loved doing projects with the students in those spaces to bring their work out of the classroom and share it with their comrades and so on. And um, the, uh, the youngsters, they might do something like their own version of the Arda Chalice. Much more durable than the original because if the papier-mâché one fell on the ground, it was fine, no damage. Uh, the Moon High Cross, and we did block prints of the images. And of course, these high crosses may have been originally painted. So these are some of the kinds of things that I used to do with my students to kind of bring them into, make the history a bit more alive for them. Some of you may know this lovely doorway. It's not too dissimilar from the one at the back of the church, or back of the cathedral here. Um, and this became the entrance to our art room where we had, and we had little heads, all the students did their own heads. This was our own version of it. So I, I had these slides because I was uh, a, a little bit further away. I'm from County Limerick, very near a place called Loch Gore, which I'm sure, well, if you're not familiar with it, come over some evening. It's a beautiful place. Um, and loads of archaeology, like this wedge tomb, 
or the great stone circle in Grange. There was loads of people camping out there the other night for the solstice. Great fun. I, I wasn't on there myself. Um, and as an art student in Limerick, this, my background, because I was from the area, it fed in. So I was doing things like stone circle drawings and so on. These are, this is another kind of stone circle, very, very detailed work. Um, this was a stone arch that I built, kind of connected with the same kind of work. This is a dolmen, not local. I think it's from Donegal, but uh, I just liked the, the power of the image. So when I came to designing my book cover, I was really interested in having a bit of my drawing on the cover. And this is what the designer did. He reversed it. He turned it back to front. And I was absolutely thrilled when my, my wife has done a huge amount of work in uh, editing. I'm, I'm, as she says, it's all in your head, but nobody can understand you. So and if, if, if you can understand me now, it's because Anita has helped me to kind of clarify my thinking. Um, so I was thrilled with what the designer did in, in, in the... Um, book cover and uh, so we've seen a little uh, okay so the scribe artist and the master artist and the, the first one up is uh, the master artist which is the page that you're, is going around there with you the Cairo page um, and just very very briefly this is uh, most people when I ask them what letter is that they say it's a P because it looks a bit like a P. It's actually more of an X shape, if you can see that, kind of forget about the long leg here. And it's not actually a Latin letter, it's a Greek letter, chi, which has the sound of CH, and it's the very first letter of Christ's name. And of course, in the Gospels, in the early, the early Gospel writers never wrote the name Christ, C-H-R-I-S-T. They always put in an abbreviation. So as a kid, when you wrote Happy Xmas and your mother or your grandmother gave out yards to you, if only you could have told her you were participating in early Christian respect for the name of Christ. Now, of course, we were just in a hurry, but um, that's actually what that means and what that paid. It's, the very, it's probably the first and most glorious, well, maybe not the first, but it's certainly one of the most glorious Xmas cards ever written because it does announce the birth of Jesus. Anyway, this is another page attributed to the same artist, the master artist, and the brilliant scholar, Françoise Henri. She was originally from France, but did a huge amount of work on Irish art, and I'm sure many of you will have come across her name. And Françoise Henri christened this individual the goldsmith, and there's a reason for that, and I kind of you'll, you'll understand it if you can see the little bit I have circled there. This is called the page of the eight circles, or the cross, the eight circle cross carpet page, um, and you can see this it, very intricate design, very similar to what you're looking at going around there, and you can see how similar it is to a piece of metalwork made by a goldsmith, made by a fine metalwork. Metal worker. This is known as the Donor disc, and it's made in a place, it was found rather, in a place called Moynalty, just up the road from Kells, about five miles away, I think, not very far. 
You might recognize this, a very enlarged image of the Tara brooch. And again, you can see the same kind of incredible detail. Obviously, this is much enlarged. So if you put those things side by side, you can understand why Francois Henri called this individual the goldsmith. In my study, I found a bigger role. I found other things that he did in the book. So I changed his name from the, I thought a long time about keeping it, and somebody said, no, give him a new name. Give him your own name. And I christened him the Master Artist, because I think he was the Master Artist in the making of Kells. And uh, what helped, uh, one of the major things that helped me to um, understand what was happening in the Book of Kells, how, how they, these individuals collaborated and worked together. At the very beginning of the book, you have what are called canon tables. We, do, we won't go into it. You can, you can buy the book or you can read it online. Uh, it's, it's, uh, but I'll just show you these pages. They're, they're illuminated pages, but they also contain script because they contain columns of um, numerals down along there, which show they're a kind of a correspondence system for the four different Gospels. Bit complicated, don't worry about it, but it was a huge help to me in unraveling how these two individuals worked together. I describe it in the book as, as if they were kind of a Rosetta stone. This was like the key, um, because they've confounded scholars for a long time. The last, set of, the last two pages in particular, they're, they're, you know, they don't have any of the decoration of the previous ones. And I think I offer a reasonable explanation as to why that is the case and why some of the issues in the canon tables occurred. Now, I'm just going to go back to the very first opening. This is at the very start of the book, Folio 1V and Folio 2R. And at the top of Folio 1V, you have uh, the symbols of the four evangelists. You have the man for Matthew, you have the lion here for Mark, the ox or calf for Luke, and the eagle for John, who's with us here as well. Many lecterns in uh, churches, particularly Church of Ireland buildings, they have the outspread wings of the eagle to support the gospel book. And a lovely, that's the gospel of John, if you like, or that's the evangelist symbol for John. And I'm just going to compare that briefly again. You can see the man, the lion is facing the other way, the ox or calf is facing the other way, and the eagle is over here on the right again. And I'm just going to show you the two eagles. Compare this one, very kind of noble head, the, the uh, pointed beak, and you can see uh, sort of hinged, a very detailed spiral in the hinge that sort of uh, on which his wings are, are um, hinged, if you like, a sort of breastplate. And compare that with the eagle from the other page facing it, and you can see a very different, almost kind of a cartoonish kind of feel to it. Not that it's bad or anything like that, but you can easily see a difference in style between the two artists. Now, I'm not going to go into all the reasons and all the differences between the two, but just to give you an idea of the kind of process that was involved in my work. And I'm just going to briefly give you a little kind of an insight into how I went about studying the script in the Book of Kells. Um, most beautiful script, and that's a picture of me studying um, diligently, spending, I mean, when, when I say I was working on this for about 15 or 16 years, 
I mean seven days a week, 12, 14 hours a day. It was never work. I just, and still do, uh, it, I, I just passionately got involved in this thing. It became an obsession. Um, I should probably be, you don't need to worry. I, I, I'm, I'm, people think, consider me safe to be out in public, but definitely uh, mad to do something with that kind of intensity. This is, I just included this picture. It's working on some of the initials actually, and I might be able to show you some of those in a little while. Um, now, I'm going to just show you one letter form. And most of you probably won't be able to identify what that is. It's, uh, uh, it's a little abbreviation for and in Latin, which is et. So you can see an E on the left and a T on the right here. There's the E, and the T is joined to an I. Um, but when those two letters are joined together, you get this what's called an et ligature. And um, you might recognize the fact that it was actually the inspiration for something that many of you will be familiar with. Right? So the et ligature here becomes the G of the GAA. And of course, the A there as well is straight out of the kind of repertoire of letter forms from the Book of Kells. Of course, you'll understand the letter form when you see its modern descendant, what we call the ampersand, which is exactly, it's a version of those two letters, E and T, um, and, uh, but, and used maybe more in advertising than anything else now. But I'll just quickly show you, these are from different manuscripts. That's from the Cahach up in the Royal Irish Academy, Durham, um, the Book of Doro, Lindisfarne Gospels, another Durham manuscript, the Echternach Gospels, I saw those in Paris in the Bibliothèque Nationale, the Litchfield Gospels, I spent a lovely day with those. Here's the one from the Book of Kells, uh, a royal manuscript in London. Corpus Christi College, Cambridge in, um, well, in Cambridge, and another scribe from the same book. This one is the Barberini Gospels in Rome. I spent a wonderful week with that book. Never got to see the Book of Kells, of course, but uh, we know why. And um, also spent a wonderful week in the Bodleian Library with the MacGregor Gospels. And what's really interesting here, the fact that they're all different is understandable. They're written by different scribes. But in this case, these are two scribes involved in writing the same book. So you can imagine they were probably trained the same way and they shared the same sort of practices and what have you. But it's no problem to identify the two hands. The same here when you look at Barberini Gospels. There are actually four different scribes writing in the Barberini Gospels. I've just put in two of them. Again, no difficulty at all. You can see where Joe did his bit and Paddy did his bit. And the MacGregor Gospels, I did a particular study. I've published a little bit of a study. It's in the back of my book as well. Um, MacGregor um, being the abbot of Burr, around the same time, around the year 800, and uh, his, the other scribe in the book, it's an interesting story. Um, again, no problem in identifying the two uh, hands in that. So we're just going to have a look at the instance from Kells again. I'm just going to put it here in the corner and fade into a, a letter form from Kells. And I'm going to show you a lot more of these letter forms.
Some of them have a bit of color added. Others are plainer. Uh, the little stroke on the, uh, the little cross stroke can be different. It might be a straight line or it might be a kind of a little, like a little fish almost at times. Uh, that varies, but the basic form of that letter is absolutely consistent throughout. That's the little one from the earlier diagram. So whether you see them as a column coming down, and you'll see little differences between them, uh, if you look, you know, in the spaces maybe here in the, just uh, in that little space there, there can be differences a little bit narrow there. Uh, or again, in that cross stroke, you can see the little roundy one there. So you'll find those kind of similarities and differences in each of these columns. But they're all basically the same letter form. And the same here. And it doesn't matter whether you, you could uh, go across, you'll see the same pattern. And I'll explain why I'm doing this now. <clears throat> they're subtle variations, but basically they're all the same letter form. Now, the first column on the left there is supposed to be by one scribe. This is what other people have identified or what they thought. The second column by a different scribe and the next one by another scribe and the next column at the end by another scribe. There may be a little bit of difference in this one because these are all parts from parts of the book that I think were written in what I call the second campaign, after the master artist has died, when the scribe artist is not at his best. Another thing is he uses a lot of red ink at these times, and you'll find that it's not quite as perfect a stroke all the time. But, uh, I, I mean, I was, I, I'm still in shock from the day I realized that all of that work was by the same person, because for a long time I thought, oh, well, this, this work is different, because it did look a bit different. When I saw all the same patterns of behavior, the same kinds of changes, the same variations, you know when the hair stands up on the back of your neck? That, I can still feel that moment when you suddenly, it's the same guy. Anyway, and as I said, very easy. When you look at other manuscripts that were made by two people, you'll always and easily see the differences. How the pages were prepared and pricked and ruled and lined, their layout, the use of decoration and color, abbreviations like the et ligature or the abbreviations for the sacred name like Christ, punctuation, uh, spelling variations, errors, corrections. I tried to be as comprehensive as I possibly could in a way that nobody had ever done for the Book of Kells before and all I could keep finding was one scribe. Well, two, two people all together, but just one scribe. I just want to sh explain to you a little bit about the attitude of Trinity College to the Book of Kells and how that has changed in recent years because this is a recent change, the kind of opposition, and I've had a, instances of it just even in the last couple of weeks. Again, it, it, it continues. Um, this was uh, a part of the provost. You can see his name there at the top, Thomas Mitchell, provost of Trinity College. This was an exhibition where one of the volumes of Kells was sent out to Australia as part of an a manuscripts uh, exhibition. And this is what he said. Trinity College is enormously proud of the privilege and responsibility it holds in having care of the Book of Kells. That's exactly how it should be. 
They are custodians, caretakers, stewards of our heritage. For all of you here, and I was talking at a conference in Manchester and there was people from all over the world there just last week, for those people as well. It's not just belonging to Irish people. This is from a book cover, official book on the Book of Kells from 2012. And this is how they view themselves now. Owners of the Book of Kells. Very bluntly, I, I was stunned when I saw that. I'm still shocked every time I see that. Blatantly stating that they own the Book of Kells. Very different from the provosts um, caring for the Book of Kells. In 2015, this is only a few years ago, and I'm just zooming in a little bit there, the Book of Kells has now become a registered global trademark owned by Trinity College. And I've, I even wonder, I'm waiting, maybe I should be in jail because I'm in breach of, no, well, their trademark uh, anyway, um, because the title of my book is The Book of Kells. They haven't come knocking yet, and I intend to challenge them. I'm, I'm, only be, I'm only getting warmed up. I had to wait until my book was published, otherwise I was just going to be some kind of peevish scholar who couldn't get published. Now, and I had to wait. I've kept a lot of powder dry for a long time. And um, one of the things I'm doing is I have a little petition. Now, if you want to become a professor in Trinity College, do not sign this petition. But it's a very simple thing. Uh, we, the undersigned, wish to register our concern regarding the attitude of Trinity College Dublin toward scholarship on manuscripts such as the Book of Kells. I have a colleague in Boston who's writing on the Book of Doro. 20 years ago, she had a book ready. Couldn't publish because they wouldn't give her the images. Um, and I'll, I'll be showing you something else now in just a minute. So we urge the college to revert not to change or anything, but just revert to its previous position, which encouraged, supported, and promoted such research and also facilitated its publication. Isn't this what universities are there for? To extend, to deepen our knowledge of our culture, our shared heritage? I'm not asking them to give me the book, um, you know, to take home for the weekend. Not that they ever left me see it anyway. I used to see it as a tourist many times. Um, because I don't want the next generation of scholars to go through the heaven and the hell and hope for a miracle. I'm really hoping the next generation of scholars, and I'm channeling my inner Brian Baru here, that I want to revive interest in our manuscripts and scholarship. I want the next generation to challenge what I've written in that book, because I, it's, it's, it's not all correct so that the next generation of colors could ch that they wouldn't have to wait for a miracle. This is from last, this is from yesterday week. I was in London. I brought the facsimile down to a publisher in London who's trying to publish a book for another, a scholar friend of mine. She's based in Edinburgh. She's writing a book on the Book of Kells. I said, no problem, because I found a way around Trinity College's prohibition. I could use the image, I discovered I could use the images from my facsimile. They're not in copyright. I can use those. And uh, so I'm happy to share that. If anybody here wants to write a book on the Book of Kells, I'll do the very same thing. They wanted to charge, what did they want? They wanted to charge her 18,000 for the images she was going to use. They wanted to be able to censor the text of her book, and they wanted her not to, she wouldn't be allowed to publish until 2025. 
most people in those circumstances just say, oh, look, it's not worth it. I'll just go away, because that's what they want you to do. But I, I'm afraid I don't go away. So my ongoing work, and I'm getting to the end of it, I, continuing my research and writing, I do lots of outreach, and I, that's, I, and I love talking about the Book of Kells. Um, I do little uh, sessions with the facsimile here. Um, this is actually from, um, I've done these since about 2013, uh, I, and I'll be doing a whole week of them in Knockany. We use the um, Church of Ireland, which is now a disused church. It's a, whatever you call, deconsecrated church, but it's used as a heritage center. People have weddings there and so on. For about an hour and a half, I, you can get about four or five people around the book comfortably, and I do that for Heritage Week, five or six nights, and I do it for Culture Night. I've been doing that for, since about 2013, and I absolutely love sharing this. It's a real privilege to have a book like that, and um, it's, it's, it's something that, oh yeah, sorry, that's, and it's, yeah, they're the dates and the times. If anybody, it's probably not up on the Heritage site yet, uh, they usually don't kind of get going until a few weeks before the um, Heritage Week. Uh, I just want to show you, this is the a kind of title page from my website. And I started this um, about 12 months ago, but I haven't really, I, look at me, I know nothing about websites. <laughs> I'm the wrong generation. And I'm get, hopefully getting some help. Yeah, that's brilliant. And... Um, well, it's, 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 it's coming up there anyway. Uh, uh, it's not coming up here. It, don't worry. I mean, we, we, it, it, it doesn't really matter. So I've included in my website things like, for my study, I had to do out pages and pages of every single initial in the Book of Kells. There are about 4,000 larger initials in the Book of Kells. It is stunning. No two of them are the same. And I'm, I want to share these things with whoever might be interested. The designer has done, don't worry about it at all. Um, not at all. Another part of the project that I've just started is I'm taking every page of the book and I am doing, a it's in Latin, so I'm doing a translation of every page and I'm sort of showing you where there maybe are some little errors or so on. And I'm also doing a little short account on, on each page, what's interesting on each page because the scribe artist in particular, he wanted to make something interesting on every page. It is unbelievable what he, his vision of what a gospel book should be. Absolutely stunning. When I was talking about Inish Kaltra, of course, you have your own wonderful scholar here, Ger Madden, who, uh, who I've met over the years, and Ger has produced several wonderful publications on that. And I think in one of them, he, he has... Um, an image of that, um, that um, dolman as well. But anyway, I just wanted to finish off by saying I'm continuing with, uh, well, maybe I can even, even if you take me to see whatever I have there, I can just finish oh, yeah, okay. up. So just go back to the power and go right down towards the end there and wherever we were. Yeah, go down another, but where were we? We were miles down anyway, there's thousands of slides. Um, right. Oh yes, that, the only thing I wanted to tell you was, really, uh, about buying the book. It comes with a health warning, right? It's not the 
beginner's guide to the Book of Kells. It's not an introduction to the Book of Kells. This is seriously intense reading. But if you're interested in the Book of Kells, you'll get there. And I've told people, your friends and people who've read it or got into it, and they, it's not an easy book. It's not, a, if you're, if you're and, and there, are, there is an audience for it, apart from scholars. There are people who are really interested in it. Among the places I've been trying to get it out are to libraries. So I'd like copies to be available, at least in a library. And um, so I just want to go through a couple of points with regard to the book. Um, and, and the other thing about the book is, I, as well, I'd love to have had about two or three times the amount of illustrations in it. But they're very expensive, and the publisher said, no, you can have so many, and that was it. So I, had, I was thrilled to be published at all. And um, so I wasn't going to argue and, and, and uh, make an issue of that. If you want to buy an e-book, you can buy it for 15 euros, I think. If you want to buy a softback, a paperback, it's 60 euros. If you want to buy a hardback, it's 120. Now, I went into, I thought, well, that's savage, dear. And, well, I went into O'Mahony's in Limerick, and I said, you know, how much? And they said, oh, no, it'll be about 140. Because between shipping and this, it was even more again, and I was horrified. So what I've actually done in the meantime, I went to the publisher, and I said, can you sell me copies at an author's price? And I now have them in bookshops, not all over Ireland, but spread around the country, and I have the softbacks for something like 49 euros and hardbacks for 59 euros, which is, they're still expensive, um, but at least it's more reasonable. Oh, I'm, I, I've, I've done loads of bartering. I've done lo I, I don't have a barter account, but I've done loads and, and swapped with people. But what's really lovely, if you actually... The amazing thing about Sidestone Press, everything they produce is freely available online. So far, I just checked this evening, I think it's three, uh, 367 people have downloaded my book for free. Now, you might say, oh, well, isn't that terrible? I am absolutely jumping up and down. I am thrilled that 360, it doesn't mean they've read it, it doesn't mean they agree with me, but that my book is getting out there. So I am interested in getting copies into, the reason I've tried to make it a little bit cheaper, so if you're not all rushing up to buy the book at the end, that's okay, don't worry about that in the least. Or if you're not all rushing up to sign the petition, that's okay too. I know you have ambitions as far as Trinity College. I only started this thing a couple of weeks ago. And the petition will go to, um, I've made a submission to what they call the Trinity Legacies Review Working Group. You may have heard of the skulls in Inish Bothan. They're going back in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be there. Uh, they're being returned from Trinity College. They were stolen from the monastery in Inishbofin about 130 years ago by two scholars, Haddon and Dixon, I think were their names. And they've been sitting in a shelf in Trinity College doing absolutely nothing. They had this project going about, if you measured the size of people's skulls, you could determine how one race of people was more superior to another and all that kind of thing. Somebody spotted them and said, these shouldn't be here, they should be back in Inishbofen. For 15 years, some of the local people, one person in particular, has led a campaign to have them reinterred where they should be. They have agreed that they should go back. Finally, 
I mean, it was, the ob it was a no-brainer, as the kids would say. A simple, obvious solution, but it still took 15 years. So I'm making a submission. I've made a submission to the same working group uh, about changing their attitude. I've written to provosts and chancellors and various other people. Um, haven't made a whole lot of progress just yet, but that won't stop me from keeping going. I may not succeed, but they won't. I, I will keep going. Pardon? They won't <laughs> so anyway, that's... Um, so yeah, anyway, so it's... And if you do really want to buy a copy, either some kind of... We can organize some kind of a barter. I don't have a, a card reader, so it'll have to be cash. <laughs> but... Um, I've, I've also given copies to people and I said, look, you can, I'll send you my bank details and I, I, you know, I, tr I trust anybody like that if you, if you haven't. But as I said, it's not a pop. I would love to write and I hope I'll get back to do a, a, a more, how would you say, a more accessible version of the story because there, there is a, a lovely story in, 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 in behind all the research. Um, but anyway, that's the... Now, I want to finish on a positive note about Trinity College. But in case you think I hate Trinity College, I don't. Um, but uh, I think some of their directives come from London. They don't all come from Dublin. Trinity College is, uh, is, is, uh, has to answer to bosses beyond, uh, beyond Dublin. So I want to leave you with something very positive. I'm going to give you all a copy of the facsimile of the Book of Kells. It's online, it's on your computer. Um, and it's brilliant, it's, it's absolutely, well, th there's a few little things that are not perfect about it, but you can look up every single page and you can zoom in on them, and they've put that up since about 2013. And it has been a very helpful to me, as well as having the facsimile. Uh, so I do want to finish on a positive note, and I hope, ultimately, I'll be doing Trinity College a little bit of service in bringing them to their civilized senses in a way that they should do. And I want to finish up by saying thank you very much for listening to me. And if you have any questions in a while, we'll, 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 we'll come to that. So thank you very much indeed.
there's a bucket there on the Ramon and anything we collect tonight will go towards the Senate Land Conservation and Development Fund. Um, I don't think there's anything else. Sorry. Oh yes, the Clears will be doing a walk around Kilo on Friday evening, starting at 7:30, and she will also bring people in the six people here. So you have three opportunities to to to, to walk and to see over the weekend our <coughs> heritage, and they're all free. And there's the foraging walk and flowers as well. So there's quite a lot of there's a program of events there on our lucky board, and I think there's one hanging in the contact field as well. Uh, you. Donna, thanks so much for uh, thanks so much for the talk. Uh, a dear friend of mine, uh, Father uh, Laracy, was uh, like you, uh, a baffler of orthodoxy in Canada, and uh, his doctoral thesis didn't get published for about 15 years because it challenged um, the uh, orthodoxy on one of the group of seven in Canada, the famous art group. Because you're an artist, I'll mention that. Mm. Lauren Harris. Okay. Now, your, my question is, when you're going through your work and you've, just, you've defined two specific artists, did they have the same color palette? That's a very good question. In, a, in work like this, it's primarily graphic. It's about the line and about the, the black and the white, like in my original drawing. And I think color is something that is added subsequently. So. And I think most of the color was actually added later on by the scribe artist. Some of it, in fact, is very poorly added. I have a whole chapter. Again, you're just going to have to buy a copy of the book. And it's a great stocking filler. Buy copies for all the members of your family. Um, but I, I, I've detailed that. I think most of the color is by the scribe artist and is later. There's possibly only uh, the, the pages that I showed you and the, the page that's going around there. That's very, it's unfinished even, and the color is unfinished in it. Um, and uh, are you finished with it? Okay, just, it's just gone around. Um, and uh, the, the eight circle cross page that I had up there as well, again, there's bits of color, but most of it is missing. So that artist's work remains uncolored in a lot of cases. And the color that is added, I think, is very often by the scribe artist. But what I discovered, um, one of the key, it's a little bit of a contradiction in terms, one of the key characteristics of the scribe artist's work is an, an incredible dedication to variation. But he varies things and he's always trying to be unpredictable. But that itself becomes a marker when, you can, when you've identified it. And when you see the use of color, and I have a, I have a, a diagram of all the color in the book um, here. There's only a little bit of the diagram shown. Uh, where is it? Here. I have um, made a little plan. It's a, it's, a lot of people think this is the nicest page in the book. <laughs> it's just a diagram. I, I, and I have little dots to, to represent all the colors. This is only a section of the pages. It's about a, maybe a third of the book or something like that, a third of the Book of Kells. But you can see there, I've been able to detect patterns in the way the color is used. And what I have found in that is that 
it, these patterns are absolutely consistent with the way in which the scribe artist varies everything. So to answer your question, I think most of the, almost all of the color is by the scribe artist. So the question, if you like, is kind of irrelevant in that sense. But uh, his use of color is really interesting. Um, and the tricks he uses to create variations in color and so on. Um, and sorry, no, oh yeah, I wanted to e echo this. I, I didn't thank the cathedral and the, the, those in charge of it for you know, allowing the, the, the this is, it's, well, I, I did remark that it's a wonderful space, but the, to record my thanks, pardon? For the lend of the hall, absolutely. Uh, you see, you're, 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 you're channeling my good friend John Kenny now, the unbelievables, you see. Now. What, what, when did the Book of Health become a commercial entity for Trinity College? Because mm. when I was in 1961, yeah. uh, you could walk in. You just walked up and you saw it there. And I suppose it would have, it, it probably built up gradually. I'm not, I couldn't, I can't actually pinpoint that for you. Now, I, what I can tell you is, in 2020 or 2021, they changed the display. It used to be in a tiny little glass case. You'd, you'd put an ordinary little case. You could walk up and, and, and the, the urban myth was that they turned the page every day. I don't know if they did that. Oh, wait, now we're, we're gone. Yes, yes, yes. I had to brush up. I did it Latin for my intercert. It's a little bit better now. But the... Uh, for uh, more, I was able to study the book when it was open for tourists. They had it, two of the copies, as I said, is divided into four. So there was four pages open. I'd be there for hours, ducking in and out among the groups of uh, Americans or whoever, um, you know, stepping back and I stepped out and she stepped in again and all that kind of thing. I had hours with those pages. Um, and it was, it, was, it was fantastic, even though I was kind of annoyed that I couldn't see the original. That... And they had this big, big glass, um, plate glass frame. You could lie up on top of it and just look at the book. It was fabulous. Now, they have a new case. It's like the Mona Lisa. I haven't been into it. You file past. You do not, you, you can't delay. The, even though I didn't get to handle it, I got to study the Book of Kells wonderfully. And they've taken that away as well, which is, you know, that's, that's, that's really... Now, you, with these books, you certainly don't just give them to anybody who walks up and says, can I have a look at the Book of Kells? Not at all. But somebody who's doing a doctoral study and it's ne absolutely necessary to see the original, I did that in the Vatican, I did it in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, in the Bodleian Library in Oxford, in Durham, in Litchfield, all over the place. Books I needed to see, no problem. You're doing a, you're doing a doctorate. Or you have your doctorate, whichever. That's you're, you're qualified to see the book. You had a question as well. Yeah. Well, I will skip the one in the Trinity. But I have another question about following uh, the not the the color patterns, but the patterns of the master artist. Yes. So did you actually? Uh, I mean, I in this, I thought it was very interesting. How do you study the calligraphy, and how do you decide that it is one artist, and how it deteriorates the times, the, the drawing? But uh, in in the in the patterns of the of of the master artist, do you study the patterns he had there, and or did they have a, a sort of Contemporary in, in those in the, in the centuries, which patterns were there? In, if, 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 if,
If, I, if I'm understanding your question, I, I showed you some pieces of metalwork, and they're exactly the same repertoire of forms and patterns and ideas. And I would even suggest, it can only be speculation or a suggestion, that maybe the master artist trained in that kind of a milieu of those incredibly gifted metal workers who made the Arda Chalice, who made the Tara brooch and the other pieces that we saw there. Maybe he got his training in that kind of background. I don't know. But uh, it, it's, uh, and as I said, Francois Henri christened him the goldsmith because his work has that kind of feel, the precision, the sharpness of it. It's, it's just really got that, uh, got that um, sense about it. I, am I answering your question? Yeah. And then the, the, the patterns that he uses is only from the metal, you think it's only... Oh, no, no, they're also on the high crosses. You, no, no, they, they, they're current. No, they are part of the... the people refer to uh, the art of the Book of Kells as being insular because there are influences from... Anglo-Saxon work, there are influences from Pictish work in Scotland, there are influences from Germanic uh, kind of decor decoration, there are even influences from Coptic Egypt in certain respects, there are Byzantine influences or late antique uh, influences. There are so many things feeding into this, uh, and so you can, it's difficult to pin them down, but the, this was current throughout the Christian art of these islands and of Christian Europe around, the, around you know, 7th, 8th, 9th century. Absolutely. They, they, these were being used by everybody. Um, you compare the Lindisfarne Gospels and it's very close in many ways to Kells. And sorry, you have a question? question one. Uh, the DVD that's produced by Trinity College, I have it and I watch it several times. Yes. I have it as well, yeah, it is. Sorry? What do, well, what do I, yeah, it, 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 it was very, that was produced around 2000, I think, and it was brilliant at the time um, because there was nothing else, but the online facsimile is superior to that, uh, and, in a, and you can zoom in on every single page. Beautiful. <laughs> now you're, you're, you're getting into. Um, I have some friends in the east of Scotland, and they're actually the, the lady whose, uh, whose book I'm helping to publish. And the, uh, the people in Kells, of course, will tell you it was written in Kells. The people in Iona will tell you it was made in Iona. There's a huge, and, and they, we, they may, either of those, it may have been begun on Iona and may have been finished in Kells, or uh, there's my friends from um, Port Mahomoc in the sort of Pickland area of Scotland, there was a Columban monastery founded from Iona. There were many monasteries founded from Iona, but one of them was in Port Mahomoc on the eastern side of Scotland. And uh, I, one guy in particular, he's doing incredible work. He's like... Um, what do you call it, experimental archaeology. He's creating the vellum exactly like they would have done it. He's making, he's also an artist. He's making the inks, he's making the colors. He's just living it. He's doing incredible work. And he reckons this is the kind of vellum they made in Port Mahomoc, not the kind of vellum they would have made in, in, in Iona. So I, I, I don't know, but it's very interesting. 
St. Gallen. Yeah, they have a wonderful collection. That's one I haven't been to yet. Um, well, you see, you could, um, there, are, there are books in St. Gallen that were written in Ireland that were brought by Irish monks with them on their travels and they left them in the monasteries they founded. They wrote other manuscripts when they were in St. Gallen and in the other monasteries. And then they trained scribes and artists to work in their style. So you have, you have a whole continuum of work, of work that was maybe made in Ireland, half made in Ireland, made by Irishmen abroad, made by their students. And all I would say, I mean, the, the, I, I, and I haven't been, it's a, it is a wonderful collection in St. Gallen. Um, I'd love to go there. But they, they, they are very, very respectful. They have a, you know, it's a wonderful library. They take great care. And I do know they, they welcome scholars, as I said, as I have been welcomed in, in, in many other places. And even the McGregor Gospels is in the Bodleian Library. Should it be back in Bor? Well, maybe, but it ended up in the Bodleian somehow, and they are taking great care of it. And again, they welcome scholars. And you can't, well, you, you get into a very tricky situation if you just give everything back to where you think it belongs. And it doesn't necessarily belong there. I mean, the big, one of the big cases is the Elgin marbles. Um, uh, and, you know, should they be back in the Parthenon? I would be inclined to think, yeah, they probably should. They were robbed not so long ago. There's a wonderful book that just I've only finished recently. It's called The Brutish Museums, not the British Museums. And this talks about the Benin bronzes and how the British, in taking over this area in Nigeria, you know, the, first of all, of course, they create the dodgy dossier because these are pagan savages with their barbaric practices and human sacrifice. We need to teach them manners. They wipe out their culture and bring all the lovely stuff back and say, now we'll mind it for you. The person who is leading that campaign at the moment, he's the curator of the Pitt Rivers Museum. He actually works, or sorry, not the British Museum, for the, for the Pitt Rivers Museum in, in Oxford. And he is making a big case that these need to be given back because they were robbed in the very recent past in a very violent colonial time of colonial expansion. But uh, the St. Gallen manuscripts, you'd, to be hard, you'd be hard put to identify the ones that were made here or there. Uh, and you'd, you, you're, you're into an area of, um, I would be inclined to say if the library there is looking after them, respecting them, respecting scholarship, you know, St. Gallen is part of the Irish story. You know, Columbanus going there and so on. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's reasonable that they stay there. There was a big, there's another book I read recently about the uh, Armenian Gospels, the missing pages in the, in the Getty Museum in California, one of the wealthiest museums in the world. And these pages, they have them on display. There was a big dispute between the Armenian peoples and different factions within the Armenian people, who should represent them. Eventually, they came to an agreement whereby the museum keep them on loan from the Armenian people. So they've, they've fa fa fashioned an agreement 
which kind of satisfies everybody up to a point. You know, they're acknowledging these pages belong to the Armenian people, to the culture of the Armenian And that's a lovely acknowledgement even in that. The fact that they're not back in Armenia is another issue. Um, but you, you, it, it, and it, these questions are being discussed and they, they will be discussed more and more. Uh, they become more and more contentious, uh, in, I think, in the coming decades. The Hugh Lane collection is another case in point. Um, but this, th there are huge questions. Up to recently, someone was telling me, uh, lots of museums used to put their collections online. You could see uh, pictures of everything. They took them all down. Because there was somebody over in you know, Switzerland. That was belonged to my family. It was robbed during the Second World War by the Nazis. We want it back. The museums pull down the shutters. They, don't, they want to avoid as much of that as possible, of course. Um, so there, there are all sorts of things, you know, and there, there was the, the woman in the golden yes, dress, yes, was it? Yes. it uh, Klimt's painting. She yes, she got it back. Yeah, yeah. There was a Klimt sold the other day, there for 86 million. Yeah, yeah. These are, these are huge questions. Huge, huge questions. Dean just pointed out the Kilfenora cross that we have. Yes. That it should be up in Kilfenora, yeah. <laughs> now, again, in fairness, you see, you can sort of, you could say, should everything go back? But look, it's being very well taken care of, you know. Yeah, and it's part of the story. But it's, there's nobody saying it doesn't belong to Kilfenora or whatever, you know. Um, yeah. There you are. It's a bit of, yeah, it's part of its story. It's not a million miles away. Sorry. I want to say anything about the errors in the book where the one page is repeated overly. All right, yeah, yeah. Um, that's folio 218V and folio 219R. We, we can have a look at it here in a minute. <laughs> and um, most of these pages, how would I do it very simply? I can do it like this. Um, if I'll just break this apart. The whole book is made up out of mini booklets. So. I don't know how many I have here now, probably too many. So, books at this time, you had a little choir or a gathering of maybe one, two, three, four, five. We'll get, we'll, we'll get rid of those ones. So there's about five pages doubled over like that. That's how the Book of Kells is made. Sometimes then, maybe to try and maximize the use of vellum, they had to put in single pages, singletons. And I think the, the, the page that's repeated, I think, happened just because there was a little break in the work and the guy, the scribe artist, just forgot that he had already written that text and he has just got a singleton, a single, if you can imagine, this is a single page. He just puts that down, picks up where he was and continues writing. And he doesn't spot it until towards the end, actually. Uh, and then he crosses it out and says that shouldn't be there. But it's absolutely by the same person. Uh, uh, some of the Trinity scholars suggested that oh, it belonged to another project entirely. They also suggest that the book was made by people who didn't even know each other, who were from different generations. I mean, there's, and, and, I mean, there's nothing, I, I have no problem with somebody challenging what I have written here and the scholarship. But what I've done there is based on 
evidential research. I'm showing you evidence and I'm saying, this, these are my conclusions based on that evidence. What I'm getting in response is just opinion being thrown out of midair. It's not, I'd love to be having a pint with, the, with somebody on the other side and saying, look, let's, let's have a good old argument and debate this and discuss it. At, unfortunately and sadly, that doesn't happen at the moment. I, I, I think I'm right about quite a few things here. Am I right about everything? That would probably be totally impossible. Technologies and science will, will reveal you know, more and more information. They're, they're, they're doing incredible things and you, you know the rate yourself that science is progressing and technologies are progressing. Of course I'm not going to be right. So, and some of, some of what I say is, is more speculative than other things. You're, you're making an educated guess. That's all you can do at times. But some of the core things are based on masses of very, very, very solid evidence. By all means, open to challenge. But, um, because that's the nature of academic discourse and scholarship. Uh, you know, you put up your idea and somebody challenges it. When you're not allowed to challenge, when you have this kind of totalitarian... Uh, no, it's a, it's a huge... I mean, maybe I can understand, I don't know. Uh, they probably, it probably brings in between the shop and the per head to go in. It's probably something between 15 and 20 million a year to Trinity College. That's a big business. They have a lovely little story they tell people, and they don't really want anybody interfering with that. Now, that's all I can... Uh, maybe, maybe they have other reasons. Maybe they just don't like me. And the other thing I did want to say, and the, the work that Arlene and Deborah do, as... Right, I, I suppose I had a bit of a background in this as an artist and an art teacher, but there was a, I had a wonderful friend, uh, sadly passed away about five years ago, uh, Michael Quinlan. And some of you, again, if you're into the historical side, you might have met Michael. He was a, just a, the local national school teacher in Lockgar, powerhouse of a man, oh, drama groups, and he wrote books himself, plays and pageants, and the local history society and the local history journal. And that's how I started. I mean, he just said, no, you're giving a talk now next week. And he just kind of forced you into it. And no, you write that up for the journal now. And I was kind of like, I'm too busy. But no, you're going to do it. And, you know, and I often think of Michael. Um, uh, I, well, I miss him every day. He was such a, an influence in my life. But I want to praise the work of people involved in local history societies for what you do, because we can take things for granted, and the work that Deborah Arlene and their colleagues do is, is invaluable. Things get lost very, very quickly. And to share that is, 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 is really, really wonderful. So thank you both. Thank you very much. <laughs>